Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie Gigi, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications consultant, I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I am alternating this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care. You can find all the information on my website and social media. Today, I interview Ruth L. Schwartz, a writer, teacher, and consciousness shifter. Ruth has published eight books and taught at six universities, and now she runs the Conscious Girlfriend Academy, the leading global program supporting lesbians and queer women to date wisely and love well. I posted photos and further details about Ruth on my website, including links to her website. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome Ruth. Hello, Ruth. Thank you so much for joining the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. Hi, Marie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, it's great to meet you. Can we start at the beginning? Have you tell our listeners about your life beginnings? Sure. I moved around a lot as a kid. My parents were very young when they had me. They were 18 and 20. My mother was a very young 18-year-old. She had never held a baby before. They, they handed me to her at the hospital. Oh my and, goodness. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up fast. Yes, you know? I bet. I mean, I think it's kind of a funny story, but it's also a grit and resilience story right there because literally my mother tells stories about how my dad would be off at class. He was in college and she would be sitting there beside me in my cradle and I would be crying. And uh, she would sit there and cry also because oh, she didn't yeah. know what to do. I bet. Yeah. My parents didn't even know that you were supposed to burp a baby. And oh. so they didn't burp me. And so I got colic. And so I cried a lot. And oh, um, yeah. And, you know, it's, um, I mean, it's so interesting how we come into our lives and what we have to learn and then what we do with it. So it, this is kind of a little microcosm snapshot of my life right there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because we moved so much just because, well, first my dad was in college and then in medical school and then internship and residency. And then my mom started going to school also. You know, it's so interesting because I didn't know as a kid how unusual that was. But I see now, on the one hand, it was pretty challenging to constantly have to adapt to new environments and make new friends. And and on the other hand, it created a lot of resilience in me. Were you an only child? No, I have a sister who's five and a half years younger. And tell me a little bit more about your father. I understand that he died recently. You said that he had a drug problem. So my dad was a brilliant boy and man. His life has been very much a challenging and ultimately a very cautionary tale for me because I'm a lot like him in many ways. I was definitely a daddy's girl. And he was one of those people who no one could tell him what to do. He was going to do it his way. And he kind of raised me to be like that too, except he didn't like it when my way was different from his way. (laughs) Right. Of course. And you butt heads, right? (laughs) Yeah. You know, in my early childhood, he was really a pretty magical figure and taught me to be very strong and independent and always told me how smart I was. And 
gave me wonderful gifts that I know now that a lot of kids are not lucky enough to get from Mm. their parents. But starting when I was 10, he became very mentally unstable. And I think that that was when he started, when he first became addicted to speed. So the mental illness part came first before the drug addiction. Yeah, it's hard to know because he didn't get treatment because he was better than normal people, you know, Mm -hmm. things that normal people would do would not be good enough for him. I believe he was bipolar. And Mm -hmm. maybe to some extent, he was self medicating with drugs. And he also really wanted to be Superman. And Mm. he was a doctor, you know, Mm -hmm, so it kind of goes goes with the territory. He was an emergency medicine doctor. Oh, my gosh, maybe a thrill seeker a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, he would work these crazy long shifts, which they make doctors do. And that year that I was 10, he had a very long commute. So the story is that he started using speed as a way to just deal with, you know, the demands on him, that he also got hepatitis from a needle stick. I don't know how many of the stories are true, but this is the legend. So he became addicted to drugs then when I was 10. I don't even remember when I learned that, maybe when I was in my 20s. And I thought somehow that he had stopped at some point because Mm -hmm. he did become outwardly more stable Mm -hmm. to some extent. But yeah, recently he died at 79 and he was a heroin addict. Hmm. And he lived his last number of years on the street. From where I sit, I would think he could have made other choices. Mm -hmm. Certainly when his mother, my grandmother, was still alive, she would have paid for him to go to any kind of treatment program. He chose not to. You know, it's such an interesting and obviously painful story of how our you know, you often hear that the, the wounds become the gifts, but also the gifts become the wounds. Mm-hmm. Had you been seeing him on a regular, somewhat regular basis before he died, or was that too difficult? You no, know, I stopped being in contact with him around 2008. There were a few things that he did that just were beyond the pale for uh-huh. me. Yeah, my brother is in recovery and he's been in recovery for a number of years. He didn't get sober till he was in his 40s, but. Mm. Even while he was sober, he did some really hurtful things, and mm. I had to distance myself from him. Now I'm, I'm, I'm at the point now where I can be around him, but I don't uh-huh. think our relationship will be the same ever. You know, even if you are sober, you still have that personality in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry that that must be such a painful memory for you. Did your parents get divorced, or they stay together? Yeah. Or? No, they split up when I was about fourteen. Yeah, you know, it's a big emphasis that I have in my life is trying to make use of things. Yes. And, you know, obviously, this is one of those coping strategies, which starts as a defense, but it's useful. <laughs> and, I, I totally relate to that. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think now because I am I've become somebody who is a healer and a teacher of healing and consciousness and dating and relationship skills. I'm very aware that the story of my father has shock value. You know, I'm also a white middle class person, Jewish. My father was a doctor. You know, I'm highly functional. I do a lot of cool things in the world. I publish a number of books. 
So people don't expect that I would have had a father was homeless and died on the streets as a junkie. I mean, it's something I calibrate around, like when there are new people in my life, like if I'm dating and somebody asks a casual question like, oh, where does your father live? Or, you know, whatever, you know, it's it's something that I have to handle with care. But as in my professional life, I feel like it's something that I bring out when I think it will be useful because it gets people's attention. Well, especially if somebody makes a blanket statement about people who are either mentally ill or addicted to drugs, you know, it can happen to anybody, obviously. Yeah, there's that. And then, you know, some of the people that I work with also have had very dysfunctional people in their lives. And I think it's really helpful for them to know that piece of my background. I think it just gets people's attention. Uh It's like... You know, because we all have projections onto people all the time, and I'm sure people have projections onto me, and maybe they think that I practice everything I teach with ease, or you know, that my life has been easy. <laughs> Your life has been easy. You haven't had to struggle like they have. Right. <laughs> yes, right. yes, exactly. Of course, my father's struggles are not my own, but I think uh-huh. there's a certain kind of credibility factor. Well, I'm sure you must have been deeply affected as a younger person to have that happening in your life. Yeah, definitely. So you were aware that he was having problems when you were 10, but you, was he pretty good at hiding it at first? How it really came out was that he became very, very emotionally volatile. Mm-hmm. And my parents started having really horrible screaming fights, mm. which they had for a few years before mm-hmm. they separated. I didn't know at the time that it was drugs. I had no idea. Mm. It, it was more like, well, what happened to the father that used to be a relatively stable, safe person yeah, in my I life? Bet. It must have been a shock. Yeah, it was. It was very confusing and painful. And yeah, you know, we had moved again at that point. There was a lot, you know, in keeping with the theme of grit, and resilience. My sister, who's five and a half years younger, for whatever combination of genetic reasons or soul reasons for that matter, or just coming later in the family system, which she didn't get those early years with my dad when he was more stable, she has had enormous resilience in her life to be able to survive what she has survived. Mm. She is not somebody who has been able to live an outwardly stable life or productive life at all. I see. Well, that's very sad. How about your mother? Is she still alive? Yes, she is. She's raising my sister's son, who's now 16. She Mm. and her third husband legally adopted him. She is a more stable figure. She survived all that. Yeah. Let's move a little bit into your relationship journey and your coming out story. Yeah. So I came out as a lesbian when I was 20. I was in college. And I think I'm really, in some sense, pretty pansexual, but I love the complexity of being with women. I love the depth and the complexity and the sense of freedom of Mm -hmm. getting to be more self-defining, like not having as many cultural scripts written for me. Interesting. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. So, and was it something that it took you a while to realize? You said that you had a boyfriend when you were 16. Yeah. For a while, my parents had a hard time accepting me as a lesbian because I did have lots of boyfriends before Mm -hmm. I came out. And I've had a few short-term boyfriends Uh since I came out, but since I was 20, I've been in love with five or six women and had, you know, other relationships with women. And I was in love with one man. 
you know, I skew pretty heavily toward women, but uh-huh, my, right. my sexuality is, is not black and white. One term that I like is homoromantic. That's nice. I like yeah. it. But then I also think that my sexual orientation is complexity. Yes. <laughs> like I like people who are gender complex. And the one man that I was in love with as an adult has a strong masculine and strong feminine sides. And, mm. and the women who I'm drawn to tend to also have that. So let's talk about your, was it your first girlfriend that had the kidney? No, she was not my first girlfriend, Mm -hmm. but she was very significant. I fell in love with her when I was 28 and her kidneys failed a few years later. She was a really amazing figure. She was really a larger than life person and she had her own grit and resilience story for sure. She grew up in Puerto Rico and, you know, didn't really know that there were any other lesbians. She majored in psychology in college. She was the first person in her family to go to college. And in one of her psychology classes, they taught about homosexuality as a mental disorder. Oh, dear. (laughs) But she talked to the professor after class and told him that she had a friend who was a lesbian. Mm. And he said to her very kindly that her friend should move to San Francisco. Oh, (laughs) she would find other people like her there. Wow. Isn't that interesting? He would teach that and then tell her that. Well, he was teaching from the DSM at the time. Oh, my gosh. So that was the official word until it changed. I was just talking to one of my students yesterday. I run a program as you know, for lesbians and queer women teaching about dating and relationship skills. And this woman was telling me she's in her 40s now. And when she was in her 20s, she was struggling with her sexual orientation and went to a therapist. And the therapist said to her, well, being gay is not a problem unless it's a problem for you. But of course, it was a problem for her (laughs) because she was afraid she was going to lose her job. She worked for a church. She had to keep her life secret. She had nobody she could talk to about her romantic life. So how is it not going to be a problem for her? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so, so then she spent many years trying to change herself. And I hear stories like this all the time. My former partner, Gladys, I think was really tremendously courageous. She just, you know, she had a few hundred dollars and a guitar and she left Puerto Rico for San Francisco you know, because she wanted to live her own life. But the problem was that she was diabetic. That caught up with her. Her kidneys started failing because Mm. of the diabetes, because she hadn't managed it well. So I donated my kidney to her because I loved her. It just seemed like the thing to do. You know, I had two. She needed one. Wow. What a gift of love. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great that you were able to do that as well. So after Gladys, there's another old fashioned name for you, Gladys and Ruth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I was thinking about the name Nancy because I have come to meet a number of Nancys who are like around 60, late 50s, 60. I think that was obviously a very popular name <laughs> around mm-hmm. that time, right? And mm-hmm. so Gladys and Ruth is more like my parents' generation. I don't usually meet people who are around my age um, named Gladys and Ruth. I love it. Yeah. I struggled with her name for a while. I thought it was such an ugly name, but I loved her. So I got over it. Yeah. So interesting. I have a friend who had a little girl a few years ago and named her Esther, which is another old fashioned name. I just love these old fashioned -fashioned names. Very interesting. So let's talk about what you're doing now about the Conscious Girlfriend Academy. Tell us what led you to, to found that and what you do with that organization? Yeah. So I founded it with 
a former partner of mine who a few years later transitioned from female to male. So we no longer work together on this project because the project is for lesbians right. and for women. And, right. You know, he, he is no longer a woman. You know, both of us had had very complex journeys to be able to have a pretty healthy, conscious relationship. And we just kind of started it for fun. I'll talk about her as a her because she was at that time. She, she had a lack of confidence around teaching things that she wasn't formally trained to do. Mm-hmm. And so at one point I teased her. I said, well, where are your credentials for being my girlfriend? You know, <laughs> where's your diploma from girlfriend school? Oh. And and then we thought, oh, we should teach girlfriend school. Oh my gosh, what a what a fun way to start something. <laughs> yeah. And then the URL for girlfriend school was not available. So we came up with conscious girlfriend instead. And it's really been quite a journey. We started it in late 2013. I had no idea what it was going to become. Mm-hmm. It's only been what, like seven and a half years. I've had women from 22 countries. Wow. My classes. That's amazing. Um, There is such a hunger and need in the lesbian community and, you know, queer women's community, women who fall in love with women or, you know, have relationships with women, whatever labels we use or don't use, because relationships with women are intense and nobody has taught us how to do this. Certainly nobody taught me. Right. Um, You know, my parents did not have a good stable relationship. And even if they had, I think the degree of complexity and intensity that often exists between women, (laughs) uh, I hear this all the time from from students of mine who have come out later in life, and maybe they're in their 40s or 50s or 60s and have had relationships. They are kind of floored because they feel this degree of intensity with women that they never felt before, but also it is so much more emotionally complex. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we just set off each other's triggers and <laughs> women in general have just such a wide range of emotional, a big emotional palette available. Yeah. I mean, I think we're more in touch with our emotions. So we're more likely to express them where men are more likely to keep it. Well, I have three sons. So this is my Uh observation. I live with four men. And Uh my observation is that either they, they have an, and my husband's this way too, that he has an outburst and then he feels like a sense of relief. But also I, the other thing I've observed is that boys in general, they're, I mean, they're, I don't think that there's as much drama with their friendships and things, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a lot more teasing, but people don't take it as seriously, things like that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, I observed and my former partner who transitioned gender also observed in himself that within a few weeks of his starting to take testosterone, he became a different person. Oh, fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Like the testosterone helped. It really, truly is hormonal. And I've read this, you know, in other accounts of people transitioning as well, because Mm -hmm. as a woman, was emotionally complex, you know, probably like you and me and most women and would have a range of different feelings throughout the day. And he says that pretty soon after beginning testosterone, that emotional complexity kind of disappeared. And mostly he would just feel horny or angry. (laughs) Oh my gosh, is that funny? I mean, it's the kind of information we have that we, you know, (laughs) now that more people are transitioning, right? Exactly. 
So, you know, in general, I think women just have the experience we have and men just have the experience they have. Mm -hmm. And not that many people have had many years of lived experience with one set of hormones and then the completely other experience. It's a pretty fascinating example of you know, we really are different and the difference, so much of it. I mean, of course, there's also how we get raised and all of that. But with my former partner's example, it really leads me to think so much of the difference is hormonal. Yeah, that makes sense. Many, many years ago, I was in a women's group with all of us except for one were straight. Mm-hmm. And then my lesbian friend who what we often used to tease her because she was the one who's getting all the sex. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> As opposed to the married women, and the <laughs> she wasn't married at the time. The other thing that I found fascinating, and I found this to be repeated as my lesbian circle has widened, that, and this is a, a probably a gross stereotype, but that lesbians tend to stay in touch more with their exes. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> right. Yeah. It so, is a part of lesbian culture. I yes. mean, it's not universal by right, any means, right. But, but yeah, a lot of us do build chosen families with our Yes. Exes. I don't know if you're a Brandy Carlisle fan. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So Brandy Carlisle just wrote a new book and I was uh, like watching interviews that she was having because she's like my favorite singer. And she was talking about her very first girlfriend and she still has this great relationship with her very first girlfriend and her and she lives down the street from them. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just like, uh-huh. Yeah, that's totally different. I mm-hmm. It's hard for me to imagine that because, you know, the few boyfriends that I had before I got married, it's like, well, but I'm sure complicated too. It can be. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways, human relationships are just human relationships. And then in other ways, there are some really distinct features of lesbian relationships. And that's why what I teach is so needed. Because you know, just again, just yesterday, this woman was telling me, you know, she's heard some of the stuff I teach before, but it's really different having it in a lesbian context. And she doesn't have to watch her pronouns. Yes. You know, certain of the things that that often play out between women just aren't the case in heterosexual relationships. Like there's a joke that maybe you've heard from your lesbian friends. What does the lesbian bring on the second date? Do you know this one? I don't think so. So the answer is a U-Haul. Well, (laughs) that's funny. (laughs) Like commitment happens really quickly. (laughs) Oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a reason why nobody jokes of like, what does a straight couple bring or what does a gay male couple bring on the second date? You know, are you all like, it doesn't, it doesn't tend to play out that way. Yes. But oftentimes with women, we go into this bonding thing so fast. I mean, I found that happen with my friendships. Uh Uh-huh. That my friendships with women are so much deeper than my husband or my sons can get to with their male friends. Right, right. I hear that from my straight friends all the time. And that's kind of why I say my sexual orientation is complexity, because I think, you know, I'm okay with men's bodies, but I crave that, that extra degree of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And I think um, some straight women are like, ah, keep me away from that extra degree of intensity. Like, you know, straight women joke about men all the time that they're kind of simple and dumb and, Mm -hmm. you know, And so it's like, there's an ease in having that kind of relationship, or there's a poverty or both, you know, Mm -hmm. or or there's a wealth, you know, then you can go and have 
the greater emotional intimacy with your friends, but without having to navigate the complexity of, of sexuality there. Mm-hmm. It depends on your mood. That's what I find. I relish, I savor my female friendships. I would mm-hmm. be lost without them. And it's interesting because one of the women of my women's group from so many years ago was actually living with another other women, I think maybe more than one, over a course of several years, and then ended up marrying a man. And mm-hmm. I remember her saying that she actually really appreciates the yin-yang of the female-male relationship. Mm-hmm. And for, probably for some of the reasons that you're talking about, that that was mm-hmm. what she needed in her life mm-hmm. instead of all that intensity, you know? So yeah, it's it's interesting to think about it that way. I'm sure yeah. the relationships are very yeah. different. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I mean, I've heard that kind of thing also from other women that were more sexually fluid who decide that relationships with women are just too complex or hard for them. But of course, many lesbians are are not really sexually fluid. They're really just interested in women. Or like in my case, just so much more likely to fall in love with women that we we really have to find ways of working it out because Mm -hmm. we don't have another satisfying alternative. Right. Is that what you teach a lot of them is how to navigate the the complexities? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how to date more wisely, because Mm. I think most of us tend, and I've done this so many times in my own life, date according to chemistry and not just physical chemistry, but just whatever that mysterious thing is that happens when you meet somebody and just your your whole being starts opening up to them. You teach women on how to- How to not do that. How to not do that. I was going to say, wait, really? People people do that automatically. Yes. Um, Okay. Got it. And and so because we, we tend to do that and then lesbians tend to bond so quickly. It's like, oh my God, I've only known you for a few hours, but I can just tell you're the person I've been looking for my whole life. I know that none of the issues that I've had with other people are going to come up with you because it feels <laughs> so right with you. Mm-hmm. you know. And then we, we go really deeply in. Mm. And whether we move in together or get engaged or you know, even get married or just get you know, extremely emotionally involved very quickly. I call it bonding with lesbian superglue. We do it before we really know the other person. And we often don't know even that much about ourselves or what will really constitute compatibility for us, mm-hmm. what we really need and are looking for in a relationship because nobody ever handed us the menu. Nobody ever said, like, you get to think about, you know, how, how are things going to work for you? So Mm -hmm. most of us haven't thought about that. And so we just meet somebody, feel all this desire and chemistry, dive right in, and then find that we dove into a swimming pool that didn't have any water in it. Right. And lots of women have had that experience over and over. And and I've had it more than a few times, which Mm -hmm. is part of why I, you know, learned what I know now, not that I practice it perfectly in my life, but I do know a lot about it. And that's why I teach it, because it really, it's so illuminating for so many women just to realize, oh, this isn't just me. Mm-hmm. This well, is a it, phenomenon. And yeah. there are ways to do it differently. There's so much power in teaching people what you had to learn yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, the fascinating thing is that I do hear similar stories from women all over the world. So it's it's not just a specifically American cultural phenomenon. Mm-hmm. It, 
it seems to be what often happens between women romantically involved with each other. Mm, Wow. So interesting. So are you like the only organization that offers these types of services? One of the few. Yeah. Um, I don't know of anybody else who's doing quite what I'm doing. Certainly there are some other lesbian coaches and therapists that are teaching. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, the Conscious Girlfriend Academy has created a, a really worldwide community. And that's the other cool thing about it for me is that it's not just me and what I teach, although, you know, I teach a lot of classes on a lot of topics, but it's also women finding each other and like-minded, growth-oriented women who are involved with women and having a community where they get to talk about these things and hold each other accountable and laugh and cry and, you know, do it differently and um, it's it's really such a beautiful thing to be part of and to witness. Now, what did you do before this? You've t- I know you've written some books. You've taught. Mm-hmm. What was your professional training? I have an MFA in creative writing mm-hmm. that I got right after college, and but then I moved to San Francisco as a young lesbian and started working at the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and kind of de facto became a health educator and mm. because I always gradu- uh, gravitated toward teaching. Interesting. Then after I got my first book of poems published, I got a, an academic teaching job, teaching creative writing. And so I did that for a number of years. But then I missed being more closely involved kind of with the nitty gritty of people's lives. So then I, I went back and got my PhD in transpersonal psychology and studied hypnotherapy and shamanic work and, you know, went much more on the transformational tool path. Wow. So all of that really leads you up to what you're doing now. I mean, it really prepped Mm -hmm. you for this, doesn't it? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. What an interesting life you've led. Thank you. And you too. <laughs> Thank I mean, you. Yes. Thank you. And and the other thing I wanted to just touch on is I know personally, I know a lot more people who are transitioning or who have mm-hmm. transitioned. And that's another area that I'm, I don't know whether you offer assistance to people whose partners are transitioning, but that's another, wow. What, I mean, what a shock that must've been for you because you fell in love with a woman. Not everybody is willing to take that journey with their partner because they're not may not be attracted to that gender. Yeah, Yeah, that absolutely does happen for people. I mean, in my case, because as I said, I feel like in some ways my sexual orientation is complexity. Mm -hmm. The woman that I fell in love with had a strongly masculine side. And so her deciding that she wanted to have the male on the outside and the female on the inside rather than vice versa wasn't a problem for me per se. But what was challenging for me was that she became a different being Mm -hmm. as she transitioned, you know, Mm -hmm. through the testosterone, as we've talked about. Yeah. Um, And as that being emerged, he is a different person and Mm -hmm. he had different needs. And there were ways that we became less compatible, Mm -hmm. I think, on both sides as he became that other person. And my attraction to him was still there. 
Yeah, he just got engaged today to his. Oh, that's partner. wonderful. So, uh, yeah, I'm very happy for him. And we just taught a class together last weekend. So we oh, are nice. still connected. And in answer to your question, I certainly would work with people who wanted support around their partner's transition. That hasn't actually happened. I mean, I haven't had anybody come to me for that, but mm-hmm. he has now started. His name is Max Pearl. And he has started an organization called Trans Resilience, through which he teaches a lot of the same tools that he and I originally developed in Conscious Girlfriend. Like a lot of tools around being conscious and compassionate and curious and self-loving and aware of triggers and able to self-regulate and communication tools and partner selection, all that kind of thing, which I still teach through Conscious Girlfriend. He now teaches through trans resilience. So he'd be a great Mm. referral for people who are seeking that, who are either transitioning themselves or, you know, connected to someone who is. There was a question that was posed recently at a dinner party I was at that was an outdoor socially distanced dinner party. (laughs) Uh And the question was, what is a little regret you have in your life? I thought that was a really interesting way to think about it. Like not a big regret, but a little regret, like something Mm -hmm. that you might might do differently Mm -hmm. if you could do it over again. And so I think a lot about my genes and my temperament, you know, some of my temperament and personality is genetic, maybe a lot of it, you know, as is true for all of us. And so going back to my father and the cautionary tale from him, I do have in many ways a similar personality to his. I am a risk taker. Mm-hmm. I am bold. I am impetuous. I am impulsive. <laughs> you know, oftentimes people would probably say, nobody can tell me what to do. Right. Um, and I, I love that about myself. And I have seen how my father destroyed himself with that. And, and so that's one of the big things that I am. I try to temper myself. Like I will always be a risk taker, but I try to look at can I take better advised risks? Do I have to take every risk every time? <laughs> you know, I've taken some big financial risks in my life. Fortunately, I've come out ahead more of the time than behind. I've taken some big emotional and romantic risks in my life, and I'm still here to talk about it. And I mm-hmm. teach from it. You know, I've certainly done the thing that I was talking to you about, about so many women doing of just falling in love really fast and then having really high stakes relationships that ended up being really shattering. I am trying to become more of my own student around that. (laughs) Because I I hear from people that I teach that, you know, they're not doing it anymore, because they learned from me, there was a different possibility. So it's like, hmm, am I going to change that too? (laughs) Yeah, now you're under pressure to walk your talk. (laughs) Well, you know, I think I walk my talk anyway. What's most important to me in my talk is telling people that there are alternatives. Mm -hmm. They have choices. And then sometimes I feel like, okay, I see that this is not, I'm going really fast here. And, you know, I have a lot of skills so I can drive 150 miles an hour rather than having to go 75 like other people or 70 or 65. And it's like, I'm basically a resilient enough person coming back to your theme to be able to get away with that. But I also wonder, I think there are a lot of different stories that any of us can can choose to live out. 
And so on the heels of my most recent breakup, that's that's why this is on my mind a lot. Yeah, I've often wondered what my life would be like if I entered things a little bit more slowly as well. Mm. Okay, <laughs> so, so you and I are soul sisters then around yes, that. Yes, yes. I mean, we're just like made decisions, a little, took a little bit more time before I jumped in with both feet first. Mm-hmm. You know, in my case, relationship wise, my husband took a lot longer to realize that I was the one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we were together for three years before we got engaged. So he's from Britain and I'm from mm-hmm. the US and we uh, met in Japan. Uh-huh. So everything was complicated. And I ended mm-hmm. up staying in Japan for two extra years because I knew he was the one and it took mm-hmm. him forever to realize that about me. Not forever. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was mm-hmm. all in while we were dating, but he he was much more reluctant to commit. So as uh-huh. men often are, right? Yes, exactly. Well, uh, and that's a blessing and a curse. I mean, right. that saved you from the you went on the second date phenomenon. Yes. But, um, but it, it sounds like maybe it was painful or frustrating. I wouldn't even say that it was painful or frustrating, but I felt like I did not want him to be backed into anything that like he didn't want to be. Our relationship's funny because we both left Japan and we went traveling through Asia for three months. And I bought a ticket from you know throughout Asia and then going back to Oregon and he bought a ticket that took him back to the to the UK. Yeah. And so there was like this elephant between us and we had this incredible trip and it wasn't until our final country India where I was thinking like oh my god I was waiting for him to propose mostly because yeah. Even though I'm a feminist, I wanted him. Uh, I to, was I was wondering about that. Why yeah, you propose? Uh-huh. Because it was all about. I mean, I knew before he did, so I didn't. You know, I wanted him to make the first move because I wanted him to. I wanted to be sure that he was in on it, right? So that's why he was running out of time. So I was going to propose if he didn't. So funny. Now I often tease him about that. Now I was like, oh my god, it took you forever, <laughs> but and there are other things where he's much more deliberative, but. We have bought two houses like on the spot, you know, so we wow. we have made decisions pretty quickly and they panned out okay. But other things like, you know, starting a project for a client without really asking all the questions that I could probably, you know, little things like that, I could benefit from slowing down a little bit more because I do mm-hmm. really, I move quickly. I get mm-hmm. a lot done, but I move quickly. Mm. So, so I'm sure I could benefit from slowing down too. Well, sounds like that's also your gift. I it mean, is. You're obviously, right. you're you're an yes. entrepreneur as yes. I am, and yes. I heard recently this in this entrepreneur training that entrepreneurs are people who have perceptual distortions. Oh, um, <laughs> we would not become entrepreneurs if we didn't. You know, like if we knew upfront how hard things were going to be, <laughs> we wouldn't do them. <laughs> Uh-huh. That's why most people don't do them. And I thought, wow, that is so true. And that explains a lot about my life, even beyond uh, my work. Interesting. Well, it did take me a while to become an entrepreneur. So I mean, uh-huh. I was in the corporate, I was in the corporate world for 30 years. So mm-hmm. it wasn't like I jumped into that. And I and I and I did it out of necessity. And then it took me a while to come around to it. So that's one example of my life where it took me a while. But that's really, yeah, very interesting to think about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, maybe I'll um, in another month I'll drop you an email and say, Ruth, how are you doing? I'm slowing down. We can remind each other. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that well, might not be a bad thing. Also, but it might also just be your gift and mine. It is. Yeah, it's like way. it's like multitasking. I've yeah, I've heard I've read all the articles that you shouldn't multitask, and I've just basically finally given up on it and realized I thrive when I multitask. I guess so. I'm you an you oddity. probably have a brain. That needs a lot of stimulation. Probably. You, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, some it, it's I don't really identify as having ADD, although I might test. For yeah, it. there may know. be some of I, that. Know. There may be yeah. some of that. I mean, Where, I like variety, you know, mm-hmm. ever since I was a kid, I've been able to do several things. I can't do as much at the same time as I used to be able to do when I was younger. But like, for one example, is when we're watching a show or something, I can be writing a thank you card while I'm watching a show, you know, things uh-huh. like that, that my husband cannot do that. Yeah, I understand. What, uh, you're, what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Supposedly, you're not as effective in either one. I, mean, I get that too. But for me, it's like, I, I can't help it. That's the way I am. So so back to my, I have a, just a couple of final questions. Have you read or watched anything recently that has inspired you that you would like to recommend to people? Well, I just was thinking of a poem that I wanted to bring up, which is by Wendell Berry. And oh, it's Wendell the Berry. Sycamore. And the line that was coming to me was about this great tree that has woven all accidents into its purpose. Oh, that's beautiful. And that's what I was thinking as you and I were talking, just like how these these things that are either random or devastating, um, how how both you and I have woven them into our purpose. Yeah, I love that. That's beautiful. And sycamores are incredible because they can be hollowed out on the inside by fire and the, and yet still alive. So wow. that's the that's the metaphor of the poem. It's easy to find online if people want to google it. That is beautiful. That reminds me I just a friend shared a poem just a couple of days ago by Khalil Gibran about it's called Fear, is that right? Mm-hmm. I think it's called Fear. I thought the river flowing into the ocean. Have you heard that one? Hmm. Oh, so beautiful. I'll send it to you because it's really inspiring me. And basically, you know, and I, I'm not very good at memorizing poems, but the, the idea is that the river has fear, but is being drawn to the ocean. Mm-hmm. And, when, and when it goes into the ocean, it can release its fear. It's, it's really beautiful mm. and very relevant for those of us who are trying to create new things, you know, mm-hmm. taking those mm-hmm. risks. So. Yeah. So my final question is, is there a story of grit and resilience that's been an inspiration for you in your life? Oh my God, there are so many. I know, I know. Well, I think the one yes that I heard yesterday from one of my students is the one that comes to mind because I heard it yesterday. This person who in her 20s, she was having relationships with women, but she was working for a church and went to this therapist who said, well, it's, you know, if it's a problem for you, it's a problem to be gay. So she talked about how literally she gave herself a talking to and she said to herself, you have to stop this. You have to grow up. You just have to get women out of your system and, you know, find a man because you want to have a child. And she did find a man. And she said, you know, the good thing about our relationship was we hardly ever had sex, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. And, um, and he was a decent man and she has a child. And then these years later, she realized that that this was who she was, that women were who she loved and fell in love with. And you know, she has reclaimed that. And she actually just ended a relationship with a woman because that woman was still so deeply in the closet. And she mm. said, I, I can't be this person's dirty little secret anymore. I was so moved. We were both moved to tears as she was telling this story. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, And now that she found the academy, the Conscious Girlfriend Academy, she's meeting all these other women with similar stories and she's getting to talk about her relationships and, you know, both her struggles and her joys with women in a way that she never has gotten to because she lives in the South. She lives in a conservative area. 
I get to hear these stories of grit and resilience literally all the time. It's so moving to me because there's the pain of it. And then there's on the other side, just everybody who finds their way into my program Mm. has had a journey. You know, we all have our journeys, but then, you know, having to have a journey around claiming your sexual orientation on top of the other journeys. And doing it by yourself, too. Mm-hmm. It must be such an honor to, to hold those stories and to help people like that. Yeah, it really is. I feel very fortunate that all the, you know, the ways I've woven all accidents into my purpose yes. Um, yes. Have, have led me to this place. That's amazing. Well, and, and that is a whole other topic that we don't have time for, which is the way that the, the church sends these messages to, to queer folks. <laughs> so, whole other issue. Well, thank you so much, Marie, for thank the beautiful you, work that you're doing. And I love the topic of your podcast so much. And I loved reading your story, you know, just the orientation of the kinds of people that you have and just what you're doing in the world is really inspiring. Thank you so much. It's been an honor for me and a, a joy in the last year, totally. So yeah. yeah, I feel like we've we've sat here and spent the last hour talking about me and I would totally love to spend the last <laughs> hour talking about you because... <laughs> Yeah, anytime. I'd be happy to have another chat with you. Oh, we won't record you. it this time. <laughs> That'll be really good. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's just been a pleasure meeting you. And I hope I'll connect with you on social and look forward to getting to know more about you in the future. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ruth. Ruth is offering an incredibly valuable service to women who love other women. Check out her website. Don't forget you can find further details about her journey and photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Next week on the Companies That Care podcast, I feature a local businesswoman, Julie Allen, founder of Mary Rose Northwest Boutique and the Mary Rose Foundation in Oregon City. Julie has created a shop that affirms women of every size. Everyone who leaves her shop feels beautiful. Her sister foundation raises money to fund financial aid for young women with eating disorders. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. Mm-hmm.